Thanks for listening to the Oasis City Church podcast. We're located in Boise, Idaho, but wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you and empowers you to take a step towards living a life fully devoted to following Jesus. What's up, Oasis City? That's all you got? (laughs) ATL in the house here. Normally, I wouldn't point somebody out, but we got Falcons jersey right here on the front row. (laughs) Atlanta Falcons in the house right here. You knew I was going to be here, and you wore that jersey, right? (laughs) My son-in-law is the assistant trainer for the Atlanta Falcons, actually, which is pretty cool, right? Great to be here with you, and as Landon says, I've known these guys for a couple of years. It's been a great joy to just kind of walk with this, with them through this, through some trying times. A story that doesn't need to be told today, but I just want to tell you that I've walked very closely with these two through a time that really tested their hearts, and it tested whether they were even supposed to come here to Boise and plant this church in the first place. And so, what I've seen behind the scenes, it's just a joy to be here today to bring, you know, maybe some wind in your wings and some encouragement to you. Great to be in Boise, our first time here. Um, Probably won't be our last time. We've loved our time here. Spent time yesterday with Brooke and Landon and Arrow and Ezra and Kaya. And then last night we went to Andratus for dinner. Anybody, any Andratus fans in the house? Wow. Yeah, we worshiped there last night, actually. and then he said something about, about a Lovejoy's and best ice cream in Boise, and I ended up there after dinner. I don't know how it happened. It just ended up there, you know. Some of, some of y'all know that, right? It's good to be here today. It's good to be here uh, with my beautiful wife, Nancy, in the house with me. She doesn't always travel with me, but here today, when she heard about Boise, she said, I think I might want to go there. So, you've been led by Pastor Landon the last couple of weeks. Holy Habits. A couple of weeks ago, prayer. Last week, repentance. Y'all, I watched that. I'm going to tell you something. I was watching online. You know, I'm just trying to get a feel for the vibe and, you know, what I'm walking into and kind of, you know, when in Rome, you want to be like the Romans, you want to do the thing. I'm sitting there listening to him talking about repentance, and I'm just wondering if I'm even saved anymore. (laughs) Right? He's wrecking my heart with this whole thing about repentance, and I'm thinking, I'm just trying to figure out what room I'm walking into, and here you are wrecking my heart with all that stuff. Come on, pastor, stop it, right? It's good stuff. So I want to continue today, and I want to talk about a holy habit that we see laid out very clearly in that text, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. You're familiar with that. You've been studying that text. You've been walking through that text. And I want to lead you in one today, which is this whole holy habit of generosity, Let's ask God to come in and, 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 and rule our hearts as we do this. Father, would, would you just remind us that this is not a room that we've prepared to invite you in, but it's a room that you've prepared and we are the ones who are invited in here. And Father, we know as we come to talk about the things of your heart and the things that, that you bring to this world, the truth that you would have be, to, to be proclaimed in this room today, we know that there are agents of principalities and powers that desire not to see that take place today. So, Father, would you stand guard at this room? Would you be the one who protects? 
who protects hearts and brings your message and your clarity into this room. Father, would you use me, your unworthy servant today? Would you use me to bring forth your truth in a way that it might be clear, in a way that might change our lives today, Father? For our greater good and for your glory and for your namesake, Jesus. Amen. Let's look at our text, our text, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. I'm typically in the ESV. If you have your digital Bible, if you have your live Bible, whatever version you have with, with you, I encourage you. We've got it on the screen for you, obviously. Um, let's read together, read it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon, and I want you to notice the use of the word every and all in here. Upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I love this account. I love the book of Acts. The book of Acts, if, uh, if you don't know, is written by the same person who wrote the gospel of Luke. He was a physician, Dr. Luke back in the day. He was a part of the party that followed Jesus around. And the mark of Jesus, you know, all the gospel writers had a different thing that they were trying to, to bring across. And Luke was just very, very clear in what he brought. He said, I will not represent anything that I've not seen with my own eyes or that I personally spoke to an eyewitness. He wanted to make sure that the veracity of what he brought to the Bible, to the canon, he didn't know it would be canon back in the day, obviously. That happened many years later. But what he brought to the story of what he saw in the life of Jesus in the early church was either he saw it or he talked to somebody who saw it. So there's no third person accounts. It's not I heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody because what do we know? The truth and, you know, kind of the accuracy gets lost in there. You start to insert your own version of what really happened, right? I'm good at that. Maybe some of you are good at that as well. But Luke was really clear, and that's what he wants. So he gives us this really intimate uh, uh, teaching and this, this view of the early church. It's the earliest day of communion, and they prayed, and they didn't make this up because they got it from Jesus. They were just doing what they saw him do. I mean, you know, he taught in the temple courts. He taught in other places, but he taught in the temple courts, and so that's where they were. And so they didn't make this up. They just did what, he saw, what they saw him do, and they, they just kept doing it. They had this single-mindedness about their devotion to each other, to the essential elements of Christian discipleship, you know, to the sharing of material resources to those in need and possessions, whether it be possessions or food, all things in common, took, and all were together, and all things in common. And it was not mandatory. Here's, here's the thing. We look at that and we're like, well, hey, Jim, you know, that sounds like there's some governments in the world that are run like that. You know, communism. Well, the problem with that, that's mandatory. You live under the lordship of those who rule and reign and you don't have a choice. This was not mandatory. It was voluntary. And to me, it was supernatural. Our hearts are selfish. This is not our natural inclination. 
This thing that they were doing was evidence that what had happened at Pentecost had become real. Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I'll leave another one who's going to take over from here, the Holy Spirit, which came at Pentecost and is now in their hearts. Friends, we're looking for supernatural signs and wonders in the world, and I know that God does that, but sometimes the most supernatural thing he does happens right here in our hearts when selfishness becomes unselfishness. To me, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, there's so much you can say about the miracle of multiplication. The thing that happened there was selfishness became unselfishness. The needs of the 5,000 was greater than the few who had that in their hands. And so sometimes the supernatural is actually closer than we realize. It's a beautiful picture of the early church a community of believers characterized by this deep commitment to one another and to the cause of Christ. They had a deep sense of unity and shared purpose, and they were, as a result of that, they were willing to sacrifice what they had for the others, give up their own comfort so others could live. It says all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to anyone who had need for years and years and years. I didn't see. In fact, recently, just just studying for this, I saw a new commentary. I saw an insight that I didn't know before. Clark's commentary says this, this whole idea of everything in common. Perhaps this hasn't been well understood. All the public religious feasts in, in all the, all the, at all the public religious feasts in, feasts in Jerusalem, there was a sort of community of goods No man at such times hired his house or his bed or anything. They were all lent by the owners. The same may be well supposed of their ovens and their cauldrons and their tables and their spits and other... Do I have any any Chosen fans in here? Anybody watch The Chosen? Don't you love that picture of early Galilee when they're in the marketplace and in there and the fruits and vegetables and the, the meat spits and everything? And what he's saying is it wasn't uncommon. That's not the mark of this early church. There was a community of goods... But in this case, it was carried farther because they sold property and possessions in order to give to anyone that had need. That was what marked this community. Because in the Jewish communal temple, nobody did that. Hey, bro, this is all we got today. In the early Christian community, it's like, wait, I've got something I can sell and bring that and you could have need. Are you following me here? This is the mark. This is the mark, and I had missed that for so long, and I saw that as I was studying for this. It's not an express, just an expression of their love for one another, but a tangible expression of their commitment to the cause of Christ. It's a mindset that recognizes that everything we have is ultimately a gift from God and is meant to be used for his glory and for his good. But here's what I know. Landon mentioned what I do. I spend most of my life in churches I spend a lot of time behind closed doors with pastors, small churches, large churches, influential churches, not so influential churches, all kinds. I know what the topic of giving generosity does in the church. Well then, uh uh-huh. So I came to Oasis City Church for the first time today. Look what I walked into. I hope to change your mind before you leave here. You see, New Testament, Jesus taught 20 times more on that topic than anything else. Must have been a reason for that. 
We think it's us. We think we're just the ones who are so materialistic and so consumption-driven, but apparently it had a place back then, 2,000 years ago. And so maybe what could happen today is if you've got a crooked string on this topic, that you've been maybe burned somewhere else before in a church you were in, or maybe you just had misgivings about this whole topic. I mean, I know what it is. Pastors will tell me, Jim, they will come in here and sit on this couch and they will confess to me the deepest, darkest things of their lives. But not one ever has come in here and said, hey, pastor, it might be me. I might be greedy. I might have this problem with money. So if no one thinks it's them, and Jesus taught 20 times more on that than anything else, Maybe we ought to pay attention to that. Maybe we've had, maybe we're the ones who've constructed the bad narrative. Let me make sure before we dive in that you understand what this is not. I'm not here to try to convince you to give more to Oasis City Church. I wouldn't come here for that. I am here to deal with your heart and take you into a topic that maybe you've never really examined your heart truly from a biblical perspective from, and then you do with that as you see fit. Everybody got that? I want to talk, I want to make three big points today. I want to start with the design of generosity. I want to take you back and show you where it was a part of our original intent. We're in the creation plan. Hey, how many of you remember your first job? Anybody remember the first job? First job. Come on. Right, you remember your first job. First job. I grew up in Augusta, Georgia, the South. My dad was a banker. He had lots of friends who were business owners. I'm sure I could have gone to work for somebody who ran a grocery store or something else, but I went to work my first job, age 15, I like to think it was in violation of the child labor laws at the time, but apparently it wasn't. <laughs> and the business, the guy that hired me owned a silo plant, Southeastern Silo Company. You know what silos are made from? Concrete blocks and steel rods. They're heavy. So there I was, you know, and in Augusta, Georgia, it's the deep south and it's the summertime. The temperature and the humidity are the same, about 94 and I was involved in all this. Let me tell you something. This may have been actually why my dad got me that job. I decided that whatever else happened after that summer, I was going to college. I was not going to be a manual laborer. Whatever else happened. So let's go in here and let's see if we can find something about first job in the Genesis story. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said this, let us make mankind in our image, in our life. By the way, when he says our, you all know what he's talking about, right? In creation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all present. In John's gospel, it says, in the beginning, he was there. And he was God and he was with you. You remember that? Everybody know that? So if you're, if you're new here today, then take this verse and go to John 1, 1 and read that and see the connection. Do that later on. That's not the sermon today. In our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I love that part right there. Some of y'all, come on. Yeah. 
So God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Here's our first job. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. What you, he held title and made us overseers. That's all. See, the whole idea, see, and, and, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, is that I began to think what was put under my management actually belongs to me. I can go there. There's a selfish part of me. Much as I want it to go away, it won't go away. And so I know that. But our first job was that God said, this thing that I have created, I will trust you with it. Now, come on. He knew from the beginning of time. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He knows where the whole thing plays out. He knows that we are not trustworthy, and he trusted it with us anyway. Do you see that? See, this is not part of the curse. The curse doesn't happen until three chapters later. Genesis 3 is where the fall of man happens. This is a part of God's original, pure, undefiled creation. Are you with me on that? I mean, you know the Bible, I mean, you can take the Bible and you can summarize it as deeply or as, as, as quickly as you want to. Here's a quick story. Pure, undefiled creation. Man defiled the creation. The rest of the Bible, all the way to the book of Revelation, is man's encounter with himself and with God. Jesus comes in and does what we could never do for ourselves, builds the bridge back to God, and in Revelation, the original plan of the Garden of Eden is restored in the new, perfect, clean, pure, undefiled new creation. That's the Bible. But he put it under our hands. It's a part of our original design. As an overseer, someone who manages, the word we use a lot of times in church, we use it other places as well, but it seems to show up a lot in church, is this word steward. Let's talk about that word for a minute. Let's make sure we have a good definition of it. It is one who has been placed in charge. Are you with me so far? Here's the hard part. And then you manage it according to the best interest of the owner. I was, I was, for years, I, was, I did not understand that last part. I thought, you know, I just get to do this. I'm going to give God credit for what he needs. But then I said, the, the best interest of the owner? Wow, that's a new perspective. Now, by the way, it doesn't mean you can't have nice things and you can't do nice things. It just means those things can't own you. And they can't rule your heart as your primary intent. And so this is a part of our original design. We were made in his image. He's a giver. Let's, let's look at a couple of stories and let's just see how that plays out. What does this look like in a fallen man? Well, we don't have to go very far. Genesis 39 gives us a glimpse of what it might look like to manage someone, something that belongs to someone else in their best interest. The story of Joseph. Got any Joseph fans in here? Many coats. Handsome. The brothers hated him. There were 12. The other 11 hated him, sold him into slavery. His father thought he was dead, actually. And so we pick up the story in Genesis 39 because a man named Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's men, went down to the Ishmaelites' slave auction and bought Joseph. Here we are, Genesis 39, 1 through 6. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, he was the king, of course, 
the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, brought him, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. The master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and made him the overseer of the house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in the house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in, in his house and his field. Listen to this. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Joseph was so trustworthy in managing Potiphar's house that the only thing he was concerned about was where was his next meal. Do you see that? That's what it means to be a steward, a manager who's someone else, and then you're overseeing it in their best interest. Well, the story gets a little bit, you know, there's some intrigue here. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that, you know, an Old Testament story wouldn't be a good Old Testament story if it didn't have a little sexual intrigue every now and then. Well, this one's got it, right? I won't go with David and Uriah. You know, that one's kind of feels like, wait, there's a man after God's own heart, and this, he did that? Go figure that with a whole other sermon someday. So what happened was Potiphar's wife, remember, Joseph is a handsome man. Handsome. Potiphar's wife wanted to seduce him. He would have nothing to do with it. He looked at her and he said, you belong to Potiphar. I have nothing to do. He ran away, but she was spurned and angry, and so she set him up. Potiphar came home and said, you're not going to believe what this slave boy tried to do. He tried to take advantage of me. Potiphar threw him in jail. Let's pick up the story. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper. Of the... Does this sound like a familiar narrative? Didn't we just read this again? And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Who, whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. I don't know about you, but if I'm in a place where I've been unfairly accused, unfairly imprisoned, when I had a pure heart, I did the very thing I was supposed to do. I turned down your wife, Potiphar, when she tried to come after me. And now I'm in prison. You know, I can tell you this, my lower lip would be out. My self-pity party would be in, in full you know, regale, it would, it would be going on big time. I would not be thinking, how do I steward this opportunity so that the warden of the prison looks good, but that's what Joseph did. You see that? And that's what God's calling us to. We have something that belongs to someone else, and we need to manage it for his best interests and not for ours. Sounds easy sometimes. But I'll tell you, for me, it's a lifelong challenge. God started writing generosity. Nancy and I didn't become Christ followers until we were adults. 1983, Palm Sunday, we went to the altar of the church we'd started attending, gave our lives to Christ. God started writing this whole story in our lives. We've been doing this for a minute. It's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. God's called me to teach his people in the American church about this. And it's still a struggle for me because of my fallenness, because of my fallibility, because of my frailty. 
So I know it's a lifelong challenge. Big idea number two, the test of generosity. I want to go to Luke 16, verses 10 through 13. Let's see what we can find there. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you then, if then you who have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other one, or he will be devoted to one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible and if you backed up in the text a little bit, you see that this is probably in your Bible subtitled the parable of the dishonest servant or sometimes the shrewd manager. And what happens there is can be very confusing in that the man did something that was dishonest and deceitful and yet Jesus commends him. But Jesus is not commending him for dishonesty. Because of his holy righteous character, Jesus is not capable of commending something like that. Are you with me on this? I'm not here to preach the sermon on that, 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 that story, but it becomes very confusing because people are like, wait, Jesus commended him not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness in using everything at his disposal to accomplish what he wanted. Are you with me on this? And then he goes to this thought right here. The idea that if you've been faithful in a little, you'll be faithful in much. It's a big idea in the kingdom. It's a big idea in the kingdom. You see, I've watched your pastor be faithful in a little. And I've seen what God's added to that, for example. And then he throws in this idea, and stay with me here. You think that he's changed the subject there at the end. That doesn't happen in Scripture. When you see something that you're like, wait, he was talking about this other thing, and then he said, you can't worship God in money? What is, I mean, you can't. What is, he was talking about two masters, and then he threw that in. What is, what is he thinking there? It's not a disconnected thought. In fact, he makes the same point in a different place over in Matthew's gospel. He says this. No one can serve two masters. This is in the Beatitudes, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters for you'll either hate the one and love the other or you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve, and I'm going to use the New King James here, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, Matthew is not telling the same story. Sometimes you see the same story in, in different places. This is, right, there are some stories that are told in more than one of the Gospels. This is not the same story told in Matthew and Luke's gospel. This is the same point being made in Matthew's gospel, but in different contexts, the same point. And this word mammon, this is why I want to read it in the, New King James, in the King James or the New King James, because mammon really gets to the point of what he's trying to say there. It's not just money. It's this idea of money as a god, a little g, G-O-D. Mammon, as described in Matthew's point, is, the, is materialism and, world, and, 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 and wealth, but in a worldly sense. And it has this attempt, this, this, it can pull you away 
You see, we think our relationship with, with money is financial. I'm a financial guy by training and background. Majored in accounting, minored in finance, passed the CPA exam way back somewhere in the, in the past. I don't even remember when. And even in 1983, when we became Christian, I thought my relationship with money was financial, but it's not, it's spiritual. And Matthew made that very clear. Because Jesus, he saw Jesus using a term, a deistic term. Anytime you apply a godlike character to something, you have applied what we call a deistic term to it. Are you following me here? And watch. In the New Testament, Jesus only applied a deistic term to something other than himself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit one time. It's right here. Are you following me on this? I want to make sure you get this. That when he says you can't serve two masters, what he's saying is you can't worship at two altars. Mammon will worship at the altar of the one true God or the altar of mammon will draw you away from it. Did you know that it has that much power over you? If you don't figure anything else out today, I hope you figure that out. That this thing in your pocket has so much power that it could draw you away from the altar of the one true God. And that's a much bigger idea than whether you give to Oasis City Church or not. And I want you to hear that. It's a matter of the heart. We struggle with this. It has this power. And so it's a test for us. Which altar are you going to choose, Jim? There's the altar of the one true God. There's an altar of mammon over here, this money thing. They can draw you away from that. It has great spiritual power. So what's a little bothersome for me is knowing that and then hearing people say in the church, well, the church is just after my money. Maybe you came in here thinking that today. I would hope that maybe you leave at least rethinking that or maybe just putting it aside altogether. Because in the, in the face of the idea that your money has that much power, worrying about whether the church wants your money or not is really not a big idea. You see, God is not after your money, and neither is the church. God doesn't want your money, necessarily. Neither does, your, does the church. <laughs> Let me say it this way. God actually doesn't care about your money because you don't have any. Mm -hmm. That's it. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all his. Mm -hmm. God doesn't want the money out of your pocket and neither does your church. But God does want the idols out of your heart. And he knows what a big one this can be. And your church wants the same thing for you. And that's a much bigger idea than whether you give to Oasis City Church or not. Our giving has the power to transform us, to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. Our stewardship of the money that God's put under our management may say more about our relationship with him than almost any other facet of our lives. Most of the rest of it, we can fake it. 
I can pray in such a way that you might think, oh, Jim's a man of great prayer. I can do holy acts. I can do service. I can do so many things. But what I do with my money, it really speaks for itself. Even if only God and I know that. It's a test of how deeply we've been formed. Let me just say a word. No talk about this, and I didn't come to speak at length about this, but I know that for some of you, you know, when Pastor Landon uses the word tithes and offerings, can I just say a word about the tithe? The 10%, you know, church language that we use, tithe 10, 10, 10%. Two things. I know there's thinking that, that our giving can go anywhere. Yeah, that's true. Just giving, by the way, doesn't mark believers. You know that, right? Unbelievers give. I mean, Bill Gates, one of the wealthiest men in the world, has given his whole estate over to charity. He gave $350 million to, to solve malaria in Africa. I don't think the church in America has given $350 million to malaria in Africa. Not throwing shade at the church. I'm just saying unbelievers do, do giving as well. What matters is what's in our hearts and why we give and why we give what we do. We are rooted in the cause and the, and the person of Jesus Christ. Our giving is for his namesake and for his glory and for the things that he wants to do. And the clearest expression of that, as much as I love kingdom nonprofits and parachurch ministries, which Nancy and I support after we finish giving to our church, the clearest expression of that happens in and through the local church, the body of Christ, the, the, the bride. And for me, when I think about what happened at Calvary, at Calvary, Calgary, that's Canada. <laughs> See, I told the Lord to, to keep all of these, these, these principalities and powers out of the room, and he let one in just now. <laughs> when I think about what Jesus did at Calvary, how completely unworthy I was of that, rendering back one out of ten from something that doesn't even belong to me in the first place doesn't feel like a big idea. So if that's a struggle for you today, maybe that's your takeaway. Maybe God begins to help you see something in that. The third big idea I want you to see is the transformation of generosity. I love this story. Our little buddy Zacchaeus. How many of you grew up studying Zacchaeus? I think I probably heard Zacchaeus in kindergarten. Did y'all ever sing the little song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he? I mean, we've sung that through the generation. I'm a boomer, and I see some millennials shaking their heads out there. Yeah, we know that song, <laughs> right? Time-tested through the ages, one of Jesus' songs for the church, right? So here's what I want you to say. I want you to maybe see the story of Zacchaeus from a different perspective. There's a lot of ways to see the story of Zacchaeus, but I want you to see it from maybe a little different perspective. That Zacchaeus was obviously a radical conversion. He was a tax collector, not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. Now, you are my chosen fans, if you've been watching The Chosen, you see how they treat Matthew, right? Peter, in particular, can't stand him. Can't stand him. And so you see, so he was not a tax collector. Zacchaeus oversaw tax collectors. And in Jericho, where he was, it was a prosperous place. It was a, it was a crossing point for the trade routes. And there were balsam wood trees everywhere. Balsam wood was a great, great uh, uh, a piece of commerce. They made a lot of money off balsam wood in the day. 
So not only was he a chief tax collector, he was a chief tax collector in an economic region that prospered. And the reason they hated tax collectors was this. The taxes went to Rome. But these people who were tax collectors, they marked it up. And so if you owed $25 to Rome, they charged you $60 and they kept the difference for themselves. So they remitted $25 to Rome and kept $35 for themselves. Some of you didn't think I could do that math that quickly this morning, did you? He's from Georgia. Let's watch. Let's see if he gets it right. That's why they hated them. They didn't owe but 25, technically. And Rome was the oppressor. And so the tax collectors were not just seen as tax collectors. They were collaborators with Rome in oppressing them in that day. Are you all with me? I want you to see this. Now let's read about our buddy Zacchaeus. Let's see what happened to him. Luke 19, 1 through 20. He entered Jericho and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. By the way, radical thought. The one thing you didn't do as a religious leader is you didn't go to a sinner's house and eat. Right? Luke says, this man talks with sinners and he eats with them too. Bad enough to talk with them. But then going, so he's saying to Zacchaeus, I need to come to your house today. So he turned and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled, all grumbled. He has gone to be, in the, be, to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Watch this. So he's given half of it away. And if I've denied anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, for since he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, let's unpack this, because you hear this and you're like, wait, what does this all mean? What's he doing here? What's... So this man with all of these ill-gotten gains, the, he, is, he is essentially a thief in the eyes of the people of Jerusalem. He's a thief. Ill-gotten gains that he's acquired by marking up the taxes which were due to Rome. His first act is to strip half of it off and said, I'm giving that to the poor. His first thing. Then he says this, I want to repay fourfold. Let me tell you what the significance of that is. It goes back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if you were found to have stolen and you didn't confess, so you said, I'm not guilty of stealing his five sheep. If you were tried then and found guilty, you not only had to repay the five, you had to repay it fourfold, you had to pay 20. Because you didn't confess. They had to try you and find you guilty. If you confessed, you only had to give back what you'd stolen plus one-fifth. Are you all following me? This is not heavy math. So all he had to do, Zacchaeus is confessing. He's confessing. He's not going to trial. He's confessing. And all he would have to do is give back five sheep plus one more. But he says, basically, I am a guilty man, tried and convicted, and I want to pay back fourfold. He didn't have to do that. Do you see the transformation that's happening here? Do you see what's happening? 
I mean, it's not just this man coming down from this tree who gets saved and surely he got water baptized shortly thereafter because that would be the only evidence, right? Probably in the Jordan or somewhere close by, right? But the thing that he, money that he had, the money that he had carried like this for so many years in the face of Jesus and the, the, became this. You talked about this last week. Repentance. The sincerity of Zacchaeus' repentance was demonstrated immediately. Immediately. And there's other layers to this story that you can unpack, but that's the one I want you to see today. The transformation that happens. It's not just the story of a lost man being saved. It's what happened in his heart as a result of being saved. His heart was changed and that radically changed his view of all this money that was in his hands. He repaid fourfold so he could stand before the people with a clean heart. He went from being a harsh thief to being a joyful, surrendered steward, managing what didn't belong to him in the best interest of the owner. Maybe he didn't know it overtly, but he knew that that was a part of his original design. And when Jesus came into his heart, he wanted that to be shown. He was made for this moment. It was his original design by the master designer, God himself. And he knew that once he was saved, that the release of his money that he gained could take him to a place that he'd never been before. He'd never seen it that way. And when he did, he wanted to do this. And maybe, I don't know, just maybe that could happen in us. The supernatural sometimes is a lot closer than we think it is. Sometimes the supernatural is in us going from this to this. The transformation that can happen in our lives. As we begin to think of our money and our possessions, not as something that we own, but as something that we've been given an oversight for. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you came in this morning and you never thought about this and there's a new thought for you. I'm sure that for someone in here, maybe for more than one, there was a voice that crept up on your shoulder and in the middle of God's truth said, you don't have to believe that. I hope you'll deal with that. I didn't come here to do anything other than to just have a conversation with you about your heart. I didn't come here to try to convince you to give more to Oasis City or to any church for that matter. Although I think if you'll deal with what we talked about today, that would be the outflow of it. Father, would you come, would you say things to us that only you can say? Would you be the one who invades our hearts, Father? Would you be the one who takes something that we've heard here today, maybe for the first time, and would you just Velcro that to our hearts so that we can leave here today different? Maybe seeing that thing in our pockets in a way that we've never seen before. 
seeing how we might bring glory and honor to your name with what we do with the the money that you've put so graciously into our hands and so graciously into our pockets. And Father, I know in a room like this, there's probably someone that says, yeah, I'm not in a good place with money right now. I lost a job. I don't know how God's going to provide for me financially. Maybe that's your wrestling match here today. And I'm praying God would just bring healing to you, that he would bring opportunity, that he would bring a a new light into your life. And Father, for those of us who just had the the fist clenched way too tightly, would you begin to loosen the grip? Would you begin to show us your way? Would you help us to see how much more you can do with our money than we could do with it? And Father, would you cause us to be more surrendered to you? Not just in this area, but in other areas of our lives. For our greater good and for your glory, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Oasis City Church Podcast. We would love the opportunity to connect with you, pray for you, or give you next steps on your journey of following Jesus. Send us an email to info at oasiscity.church to get connected today.